Welcome to another episode of the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. This week, I'm joined for a fascinating conversation by Palo Alto's Damien Lukey. Damien is a systems engineer over at Palo Alto and has worked at CrowdStrike previously. During the next 25 minutes, we get through quite a lot. We talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence, where they're actually useful versus where the hype is. We talk about the rapid change out there and the huge volume of threats that's being experienced. We talk about the benefits of data lakes and compare those to data graveyards, tech consolidation and the trends that Damien is seeing. We talk about SOAR and where he thinks they will go, and maybe we drop the S for security from SOAR systems. And lastly, we talk about big game hunting, so that idea that attackers are now collaborating to, to attack organizations. I will apologize, there's a couple of pops during the recording, but otherwise, yeah, hopefully you can just sit back and enjoy the conversation. I'm joined to today by Damien Lukey, and uh, Damien's a guy who I met at a, a conference event a couple of months ago now, probably about six months ago. We were both speaking there, and uh, we've kind of struck up a friendship since then. And um, yeah, I thought it'd be really interesting to have a chat today about cyber resilience. I think what your career has done so far uh, fits in perfectly with that. So maybe that's a good starting point, Damien. Mm -hmm. First of all, welcome along. Um, Thank you. But if you wanted to kind of just run us through where you are today, how you got there, and that's probably a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so thanks again, Gar, for, for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, a little bit about me. So I work as a systems engineer here in Sydney, Australia for Palo Alto Networks. Uh, prior to that, I spent about three years at CrowdStrike, which is an endpoint security company. But uh, before that and before cyber resilience was, was the primary focus of my career, I actually spent a few years as a nuclear weapons systems engineer at a Northrop Grumman out of Los Angeles. Well, that's pretty pretty full on. Yeah. You need to be fairly resilient in those kind of facilities, I'm assuming. Oh, absolutely. In, in fact, I'd say some of the challenges that we see today as you implement cyber resilience at scale, Northrop Grumman already was dealing with um, you know, back in the day. Yep. When you build these sophisticated systems and weapons, you kind of want to make sure that they aren't hackable or at least not as vulnerable. Definitely can imagine that. And you've moved over from the US uh, fairly recently, actually, right about two, three months ago, probably. You're right on the money. Yeah, about yeah. two months ago today, actually. And, and how does it feel? Like, obviously, the, there's better coffee here, I'm going to mm -hmm. call it. Um, but in terms of the cybersecurity industry, like, what, what's the differences? That's a great question, Gar. <clears throat> you know, I'd say from a cybersecurity maturity perspective, uh, a lot of the organizations are the same. Mm. Right? A lot of the conversations you tend to have are pretty similar at a high level. But what I do find interesting here is uh, there is a disparate level of maturity where a few organizations are incredibly focused. They have built out a cybersecurity strategy and plan, they're focused on risk management. And then there are a lot of folks who want to get mature, want to continue that security journey, but just aren't quite sure how to do it. Mm. So I'd say that gap is greater here, um, but the desire to change, the desire to be secure and stay secure is exactly the same. Yep. Yeah, I've definitely seen that and uh, actually talking to some of the, the Gartner analysts uh, a little while ago, and, and one of the comments one of those guys made is that actually the, the US looks at the ASD and some of the publications they produce, things like, you know, they're a paper on DMARC recently. Mm -hmm. uh, for them, they're almost seen as the gold standard in terms of like you know security practices and protocols mm -hmm. or, or, or efforts. So um, yeah, I, I definitely I think there's a lot to be proud of here in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, look, one of the things we've talked a lot about, um, given that we have beers occasionally and just can't get away from from the, the jobs that we do, of course. Um, but we kind of joke about you know machine learning and artificial intelligence and. In our gig, if mm -hmm. you mention those, certainly when you're talking to people who are looking at buying new platforms or investing in something new, you get raised eyebrows. People are a little bit like, oh, really? You're mm -hmm. going to mention the AI ML thing again? Mm -hmm. and, but they're, they're really critical, right? So um, like, what do you see as the kind of important security use cases there? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's a great point. Uh, oftentimes, the terms AI and ML are used interchangeably. And in fact, I'd like to first say that they're not. Yep. Um, obviously, machine learning is a, a subset of what we view artificial intelligence to be or, or the potential for artificial intelligence to be in cybersecurity. Um, the key use cases I see with machine learning, it's really all about uh, separating the wheat from the chaff in terms mm. of the right data that you should be looking at. And then some of the specific use cases are based around um, baselining and understanding malicious behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you see adversaries using OS native tools to bypass traditional security measures, but then also the iteration from, if you looked at both um, endpoint as well as network security, trying to identify similar features without needing to have a huge database of signatures to say whether or not a particular file that's being run or brought into your network is or isn't malicious. Mm. So it's all about really just building and defining these classifiers. So what is good or what should be good? And then if you're not sure how severe you'd like to be in preventing something from from actually coming in. Yeah, and you can sort of dial it up, dial it down, right? But I suppose in a way we've moved away from a world where signatures will ever be enough, right? Things change so quickly that, Mm -hmm. you know, much as we hate AI, ML as kind of terms and, you know, the raised eyebrows, Mm There really isn't any other way to deal with the just this, the rapid change and the, the huge amount of stuff happening, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> per that point, I, I read an interesting article last week where I mean, figures vary from time to time or your source, but I think it was 925 million new samples of malware were found last year. So yeah. if you boil that down to days, that's 375,000 new files, new threats that you need to stay on top of in 24 hours. And that's a lot. <laughs> exactly. And who, who has that kind of time? Yep. Um, moreover, you slip up once, right? Someone doesn't keep that database updated and, you know, you it got, just, you, got you only got to be right once to get in. That's the problem, right? Mm-hmm. But so on the on the flip side, like where do you see AI and, and ML overhyped? Because let's be honest, like it does happen. Mm-hmm. And like where, where do you see that happening? So <clears throat> I honestly, I, I see it in a, a way that vendors can position their solutions in the sense that they view AI and ML as the be-all, end-all. This is all that matters when it comes to building a security solution. Um, it is a very useful key, but I would always recommend, right, whenever you're looking at security to focus on uh, this idea of both defense and depth. So making sure your network, your endpoint, your cloud workloads are secure, but also breadth. So not relying on AI and ML to be the one yep. thing that stops everything, but also, of course, leveraging other tools, skill sets, and the right people to uh, to make sure that you're safe. And people like, so that that is a common theme we hear these days in, oh, in yeah. a bunch of different ways. Um, one of the things we've been talking about recently is the kind of the, the value you can get from integration with other platforms. So mm-hmm. for example, as a platform, we integrate with you guys in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. And um, like the, the things we're looking to do there is reduce the amount of time that people have to spend doing things. Mm-hmm. And one of the big issues on SOX and security operation centers yes. is really the amount of time wasted on false positives and chasing dragons. You know, there's nothing there at the end or mm-hmm. chasing smoke, really. Um, AI, ML helping a lot with that? Um, absolutely. <clears throat> so actually, you pointed out this idea of false positives, and I think a really great use case from a SOC perspective is to apply AI and ML to help prioritize alerts based on severity mm-hmm. and criticality. So what do I need to look at and what recommended steps based on the data that these engines have been collecting can I take as a SOC analyst? Ultimately, you will always receive an alert that you have to investigate, but make sure that you investigate it the right way in the right amount of time uh, to prevent that incident, that alert, from becoming an actual breach. 
which of course is everyone's worst nightmare yep. when it comes to security. And, th- and that's it, right? You can't get away from chasing the false positives because mm-hmm. if you get it wrong once and it turns out actually it's not a false positive, mm-hmm. then yeah, it's game over, right? Um, I saw stats, and I can't remember the company that did this survey, um, but there's a pie chart where they look at the the, the rate of false positives, mm-hmm. and it's astonishing. Like most of the time, it seems like stock analysts are spending. Mm-hmm. It's chasing things that actually don't turn out to be anything, and they're expensive. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not cheap to hire security analysts. Yeah, I actually think kind of bringing it back to your original point, where do you think AI and ML are overhyped? Mm-hmm. I think by being too reliant on these technologies, you can in fact create a higher likelihood of false positives. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, yep. or if you're looking at the wrong data, same issue. So, yep. I, and it's it's terrible to see and terrible to hear, right? Because people are trying to do their jobs, and the right technology might be in place, but of course, it takes a certain nuance to actually tailor it, understand it based on your environment and the threats that you are seeing. You, uh, you you're speaking my language. I think uh. one of the things that we we so often see in this world is the bit where. Uh, there's a new approach, sometimes mm-hmm. like a store technology, amazing, but people forget the bit where you have to dial it into a specific environment yes. and also be realistic about the time to kind of realize value from that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, definitely would see that. Um, sort of pivoting maybe a little bit, but like, can you run us through what a, a data lake is? I know that's something you guys do a lot of. Yeah, use a lot of. It's, it's a great question. I, I think it's important to... I read an interesting article actually... Uh, Earlier, uh, earlier last week about the difference between a data lake and a data graveyard. So a data lake basically is a repository, uh, typically hosted in the cloud. So you've got um, AWS, S3, Microsoft Azure, different, different places, Google Cloud, uh, where you can host this data. But basically, it's a repository of both formatted and unformatted data. So metadata, telemetry that you're getting uh, from your different environments. And then formatted and typically what happens is uh, once you have that data, um, you do something with it and you have a data lake or you do nothing with it and you have a data, a data graveyard. And one of the important things is once you have this repository of information, actually doing something about it, iterating it, transforming it in ways that benefit you and your organization as, as well as you can. Mm-hmm. Again, back to that point of understanding your environment, normalizing everything. Uh, I think the way that you keep that data lake nice and blue and algae free is to uh, yeah. continue to use and reuse and manipulate the data as well as you can. Um, and then, of course, leverage the right technology to, to help you do that. And, and so with those technologies, what are the kind of benefits you'd see flow out from a, a well-kept algae-free uh, data lake? Yeah. Maybe with some like parasols on the, the side of the <laughs> lake and uh, some Mai Tais or Long Island iced teas at the swim-up bar. Well, but... I was going to say that, maybe some stand-up paddleboarding. Oh, got a beautiful data there lake. There you go. Um, <clears throat> so absolutely, I'd say there are a few key technologies you can leverage um, and ways to keep that current. Uh, so the first is to continue to ingest new data. Um, and as you filter through what you view to be uh, valuable or unvaluable, back to this whole idea of separating the wheat from the chaff, continue to refine that data set based on the use cases that you're looking for. Um, so the first thing I would say is not all alerts are bad. Um, you don't want to miss one. But as you start to train whatever analytics engines are in the data lake, so that's typically the, the key use case we see in security, is refine that data. And then also, as you collect new and different forms of data based on where you are in your environment. So what I see on the network uh, versus what I see in my cloud, if it's private, public, whatever the the environment might be versus the endpoint, different types of data, different ways of using it. Um, But try to see uh, both from what you can do 
as an organization, as well as the right vendors. And there are actually a lot of really cool open source projects that are coming out there too, mm -hmm. um, to develop the right solutions based on this idea of, again, what use cases benefit your environment best, right? If I work in utilities, um, the threats I'm gonna deal with are very different than if I'm in media. There will of course be crossover, but again, it's taking that data and manipulating it as well as you can. Yep. Um, and there is no silver bullet, right? There are, I, I would never encourage people to choose point products for everything, but of, of course, as you look for what's best suited to your environment and what you're looking at, um, choosing the right vendor, the right techno technology approach to, uh, to address that. And outcomes would be things like correlating threats that come in in different sort of vectors. So mm -hmm. you could look at something like in a, you know, in a web security uh, platform versus email versus maybe an endpoint or Yuba type platform. Where Absolutely. Can, yeah. Yep. So actually one example you could use there is if you have, say, an air-gapped environment, so someone sticks in a USB stick, a la Stuxnet, and something starts behaving very, behaving very erratically, um, that's going to be one correlation and analysis technique, whereas if everything's hosted in the public cloud, <clears throat> you need to be far more concerned about uh, process injections and different applications opening up different things at different times. You know, I'm not going to be worried about notebook opening up Internet Explorer and downloading a file if nothing is talking to the Internet. But I am going to be very scared if my centrifuge starts spinning faster than it should. It probably should be. <laughs> you <laughs> yes. have a centrifuge, man. You've, you've, got, you've got everything. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it kind of leads on, I suppose, the idea of tech consolidation. Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge thing. It's, uh, we've been talking about it for probably 18 months, two years. It's yeah. been something that's come up with, uh, with our customers. Mm -hmm. um, what are the trends that you're kind of seeing in terms of tech consolidation at the moment? Um, absolutely. So it's it's a great question, um, and we can talk about it in a few different areas. Uh, Gartner just defined this new uh, this new market, SASE. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've heard about this, I have. so an interesting idea there, right? Is it's not just focused on uh, what a CASB was or um, different technologies for your your public cloud. It's now integrating everything, so it's more focused. And in general, I would actually say, kind of taking a step back, if you look at endpoint security, network security, and cloud security. Tech consolidation is happening because customers care about outcomes. Um, there are shops that, of course, can buy the best of breed and have a team of 50 men and women who can work all these point products. But quite frankly, especially as you scale, uh, that's very, very difficult to do. And what I see from a tech consolidation perspective is it's just because customers care about outcomes and because the right technology is needed to protect a particular environment do need to combine. So the example I would use coming from my CrowdStrike days would be of the idea of EPP, so endpoint protection. So for the longest time, right, for 25 years, it was antivirus, right? It was this idea of <clears throat> stop bad files. But what has happened in the past two, three years is they've realized that the technology needed to detect and respond, so endpoint detection and response, as well as what was EPP. So endpoint protection have in fact been, excuse me, have in fact been combined to produce what's called an endpoint protection platform. And back to that whole idea of tech consolidation, Platforms are becoming the right way for customers to do this because new capabilities will need to arise as threats become more and more advanced. Yep. Yep. And uh, like one of the areas you see that is, I suppose, SOAR type technologies where oh, yeah. you're bringing in you know feeds from lots of different places and mm -hmm. then introducing also not just the consolidation of, in that case, data more than technology, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, but then orchestrating actions or automating things out of those sort of SOAR plays. Yeah. Um, that's, that's huge at the moment. Like mm -hmm. most organizations we're talking to are either doing it already or they've got a plan to do it. Yeah. It almost reminds me of 0365 about two years ago, three yeah. years ago. You know, everybody was like, 
you're not there, but we absolutely have it on our roadmap. We're going to, and they would have a date in mind, mm-hmm. and it tends to be that uh, sore. Kind of feels like that at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what do you think the evolution will be? Kind of next. 12 to 18 months? Um, That's a great question. And it's funny because I was actually speaking with someone about this last week. So what's great about SOAR and SOAR technologies, right? The idea is you have these playbooks. So of course, you're going to tailor whatever steps you need uh, based on a playbook, um, much like in sports, if you're familiar with the idea. Certain time of game, you're going to orchestrate a certain play. um, But of course, you're going to still need to take some form of action as a human. So the first iteration I see is vendors who are really leading the space have integrated a way to interact, so to really orchestrate with other analysts. So you're not just afraid that you're pushing the big red button and suddenly you blue screen all your devices. There needs to be an accountability check. Yep. Um, and the next iteration, this is really interesting to me, is lopping off the S from SOAR mm-hmm. and having just orchestration and response. So again, this idea of there are security specific use cases, but there are also ways of using orchestration, automation, and response in other tech stacks. Um, or leveraging lessons learned from security to do something. So I've I, uh, heard a really interesting example of someone who's used a SOAR playbook to order pizza, for example. Um, now I'm not saying, <laughs> right? How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> Can we get it? But it, it is interesting because you'll start seeing issues related to say organizational security. Mm-hmm. So an employee gets terminated and to prevent data leakage, although that is traditionally a, a HR operation perspective, or, or usually that falls into that bucket, integrating that into, okay, well now let's look at the DLP ramifications of this. Make sure they're not sending emails to their personal email address with file attachments. So I think the next iteration is not binning that into just security, but seeing where security can be applied across the organization. I'm just stuck in the whole pizza. Yeah, I know, me too. <laughs> just, uh, my brain just blanked out there and I haven't yeah. come back to the security oh. conversation at all. That's good. Um, uh, olives, yeah. are, uh, olives or anchovies, what do you want? Uh, definitely not anchovies, definitely olives, All and right. as much as, them, as I can get. Pineapple okay. also, which I know is controversial sometimes, oh. but I like the pineapple. No, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. Sweet and salty, it's perfect. Yeah, it's, it's the way to go. Um, so yeah, like there's, there's a lot of, of stuff there. You guys do obviously um, sort of platforms, mm-hmm. and um, like what, what are the, the sort of good use cases or outcomes you've seen in terms of uh, Palo Alto? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> we, of course, uh, acquired this company, Demisto, um, earlier this year. Phenomenal technology, and we've really been able to integrate Demisto's platform from an orchestration and response capability into, into our technology stack. So a very helpful um, but, but really good use case is spear phishing. Yep. So obviously there are remediation steps that need to happen. So when you get an email, Someone does the thing that they should, they paid attention to their security education, so they forward it to a phishing inbox and they're like, hey, we're kind of, we want to be sure that if this is suspicious that we we do the proper thing. And what we've been able to see with Demisto and these use cases is actually being able to integrate our sandboxing capabilities, our endpoint protection capabilities to analyze whether or not the attachments aren't malicious, uh, using orchestration and automation to rasterize the email, so actually take screenshots so you're not clicking any links or making anything dangerous, and then putting all of that data into something that you can manage by the cloud. So mm-hmm. you can just log in with your, your login and um, actually see all the data you need to about the event. And then when it gets to that critical point where it's, hey, Mr. and Mrs. SOC analyst, please take action, they can make that informed decision. So yeah, yeah no really cool use case with the spear phishing. Very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned uh, last time we were having a beer this this idea of big game hunting. Mm. What is it? Can you run me through it again? Big game hunting. <clears throat> so 
commodity threats exist. Um, we all run into that working in security, but big game hunting is this idea that large organizations, uh, nation state, e-crime or hacktivists have, instead of deciding to go their own way, a la Fleetwood Mac, um, have decided to come back together and uh, they'll actually work together in tandem with one another. So a really good example that I like to, I like to use um, just because I've experienced some of this firsthand in my own career, having customers struggle with some of this, mm -hmm. is um, Mummy Spider. So Mummy Spider and the Emotet loader. Yep. So basically what they do is it's a, it's a loader as a service. And basically they say, hey, we've got this technology. Um, we know that you're looking at these folks. Hire us as a service. And then you can put whatever whatever type of malware or exploit toolkit you'd like within this loader. So we'll get you in, we'll team up together and reap larger financial rewards. And it's uh, actually for that point, it's, it's interesting what you see is this idea of onesie twosie ransomware payouts of a hundred bucks. Um, that's by far going away. But when you look not just here in Australia, but across the globe, there are more tailored and targeted attacks that we see with these big game hunting ideas. Uh, but the payouts there are $250,000, $500,000, few million dollars. Um, the makers of GameCrab ransomware actually claimed last month that they've made over $2.6 billion, and therefore considering retirement, which, um, I mean, if I had $2.6 billion, I might too, but uh, I wouldn't want to get it that way. Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of a little bit like uh, being a pickpocket versus being part of the Ocean Eleven's crew, right? So exactly. Sort of same kind of go after the, the big ones. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, interesting to see this tech consolidation, but then on the on the bad side of things, you know, people are getting together to, to do their to do their mm -hmm. bad work. Also, um, so what keeps you awake at night? Ooh, what keeps me in awake? terms of cybersecurity? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm sure, partying and having <laughs> a good time, but outside of that, cybersecurity. Yeah. So. Um... What keeps me awake at night? That's a great question. For me, it's twofold. Uh, the first is the fact that, back to this point of a data lake and the idea of defense in depth but breadth, is that there are humans on both sides of a cyber attack. Uh, we tend to focus on the victim because oftentimes as vendors, that's that's our customer. Yep. And that, of course, helps revenue, all that, all that jazz. But I think what's what keeps me awake at night is that they're incredibly sophisticated, driven, smart, not just individuals, but organizations who, as they see this technology consolidation, as they see these new use cases, can in turn anticipate what they're gonna come up against um, and are highly nuanced and orchestrated. Um, so what keeps me up at night is, is just ensuring that we as an industry stay vigilant and transparent and focused with one another to ensure that we, we remember, although we do, obviously we care about the customer, we also need to be cognizant of who we're up against because they're just as motivated, they they're are. just as driven. And if they weren't successful, they wouldn't be doing it, right? They wouldn't yeah. be doing it, exactly. Yeah, I mean, on that, one of the things I like about it, if it's maybe the thing that makes, helps me go asleep at night, is the mm -hmm. collaboration that I see within our industry, which mm -hmm. I don't know was even a thing two or three years ago, yeah. um, even longer ago. Um, we see it at conferences where like, all the vendors are talking to each other, mm -hmm. they all integrate with each other. There's this kind of not saying cheesy, but like a bit of a spirit of, hey, we're actually in this together. And I think that was either Azer or Ozzert's um, mm -hmm. like conference theme one of the years. Um, so where do you get the information that you need to do your job? Like where do you go to find out what's happening? Uh, keep yourself informed. Absolutely. <clears throat> so a uh, few. So the first is podcast. I know we've discussed a few. So of course, your locally named Risky Business is a great one. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of the Cyberwire, uh, so a few of those podcasts, Hacking Humans, if you're interested in social engineering and back remembering, yeah. hey, you know, there are bad guys on, on the other side too. Um, I'd also say just Google Alerts, right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're interested in a particular industry or that's a, a focus for you and your customers, uh, just having that come up. So I try to spend between 60 to 90 minutes a day listening and reading as much as I can, um, sometimes more. Uh, at the at the loss of sleep and therefore uh, my REM cycles don't always get happy. Uh, so maybe that's what keeps me awake at night is just trying to stay informed. Well, you told me the last time we had a beer that uh, you had gone home after a pretty big night and mm -hmm. then proceeded to watch security videos on YouTube. So like that's dedication <laughs> to the cause if I've ever heard it. That's very true. Uh, um, what conferences do you go to and, and like why do you choose those ones? And, and given that you're fairly new to Australia and mm -hmm. um, I don't might have a, a US uh, flavor to this, but either ways. Yeah, absolutely. So um, here in Australia specifically, uh, conferences, so ASA, Big proponent of that and um, Gartner. So with Gartner, obviously you have a few different flavors. Uh, the first is of course, I, from from a high level, the IT symposiums are always great. Um, I've been to the ones both here as well as back in the States. I think that's more important from, um, from a high level landscape overview, understand the new technologies, the new ways that people are gonna approach digital transformation and cloud migration and all of these big buzzwords that are also very important because a lot of people are having to figure out how to do that and who best to do it. Um, the risk and IT summits are great, mm. um, obviously from, from Gartner as well. And then um, I'm a big believer in uh, some of the smaller localized ones. Yep. So there were several that uh, being from San Francisco, I went to in, in the Bay Area in particular. Uh, and then partners, back to that, uh, it's not so much a conference, but whenever technology partners put on events, I think it's it's good to go because it's back to that idea of we're all in this together. Yep. So having uh, having perspective into how all of these technologies are working together and the the value that provides people is is, is really important. Awesome. And then last question. So if you had a magic wand or maybe a genie mm -hmm. and uh, you could sort of rub the little lampy thing and the genie mm -hmm. pops out and gives you one wish, like what is the, the wish you'd make for cybersecurity? Transparency, 100% transparency. And I'd say it's transparency in both education and capability. So the first is educating just the general populace. So helping people understand security is no longer an IT discussion, it's a business discussion. And there are serious ramifications if you're not secure, not just in business, but at home. Um, my mom, I was on travel in New Zealand in March. My mom got a ransomware enabled macros word document sent to her with a spoofed email by my dad because it was US tax season. And she called me being like, hey, Damien, this is super weird. I don't mean to inter interrupt you, but uh, can you check this out? Mm. Um, we were able to do some basic checks because she knew that enabling macros is never a good idea. But if she didn't have a son who worked in cybersecurity who talked about this stuff, um, she might not have done that. Yep. Uh, from the vendor side, I think transparency of capability in the sense that uh, every customer's journey is different. And based on what they're trying to do, the technologies that they need to leverage to be successful may not always be uniform. And I think it's very easy to get into an us versus them conversation instead of remembering, again, let's be transparent with the customer about what they can do, what requirements they have in order to provide them with the right solution. I know that's very altruistic, but um, at the end of the day, I think that's what's important. Yep. Keep people educated and keep yourself honest. So for what it's worth, it's probably the theme that I've seen when I ask that type of question. Mm -hmm. Every single time nearly, it comes back to some version of an altruistic view of the world. Mm -hmm. And people have talked about protecting grandmothers and, you know, but it's always the people. 
um, I suppose why we why we do this thing. Yeah. Um, we've pretty much run out of time, so I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to to come and uh, talk today. Mm-hmm. Um, really love the uh, the insights and uh, giving your kind of broad experience. Um, I think really valuable, hopefully for the audience as well. So thank you for uh, joining us today, um, Damien Lukey from Palo Alto. Thank you very much, Gar. It was my pleasure. And there you go, Damien Lukey from Palo Alto, talking us through lots of different things, but the thing that I think will stick out in my mind is the Sore Playbook to Order Pizza. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that interview, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode of the Get Cyber Resilient podcast.